Hello, everyone. Welcome to Solidarity Is This. I'm your host, Deepa Ayer. I'm so glad that you can join us this month for our podcast, which explores solidarity practices in America's changing demographic landscape. Now, we all know that solidarity is a buzzword these days. And on this podcast, we ask, what does it really mean? How do we practice solidarity, both the messiness of it and the potential for it? How do we act in solidarity while the lives, bodies, and rights of people of color are under constant threat? You can download episodes of Solidarity Is This monthly over iTunes, or you can check out www.solidarityis.org where you'll find past episodes as well as a solidarity syllabus that relates to every single one. Now, this month's episode is called Campus Solidarity. So many of us cut our teeth on activism and resistance in college. I remember that for myself, my first experiences with making demands to power actually occurred on my college campus at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. We, the students of color, struggled for more diverse professors and inclusive classes. I'm sure that a lot of you are resonating with my experience. Now, last year, I had a chance to return to my college campus for a talk around my book and to discuss what solidarity means between South Asians and Black communities. While I was on campus, I noticed that Vanderbilt had an articulated and expressed commitment to the concepts of diversity and inclusion. In fact, many institutions of higher education now have staff who are dedicated to advocating for and assisting students of color, women, LGBTQ students, and some even have offices that are focused exclusively on equity and inclusion. So clearly, these ideas have taken seed on college campuses over the years. What are the needs that students are facing now, and how is solidarity happening? And what does it mean to build equity beyond diverse classes, programs, and professors? To unpack all of that, I'm excited to talk with Shige Nick Sakurai, who is the acting director of the LGBT Equity Center at the University of Maryland, and Isha Ramanujan, who is a recent graduate of Northeastern University, where she was a campus activist. Isha is currently a campaign researcher at The Color of Change. Shige and Isha, welcome to Solidarity Is This. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So before we get into our conversation, Shige and Isha, I want to paint a very big picture view of institutions of higher education in this country. So as we know, college campuses are beginning to look really different these days because of all the demographic changes that are happening in our country. But it's important to point out that students of color, particularly Black and Latinx students, continue to be underrepresented at many college campuses, which is, I think, a reflection on the structural inequities that students of color face throughout their educational journeys from K through high school. Community colleges and public universities are enrolling more students of color, which are also seeing an increase in staff and centers dedicated to addressing diversity and equity. Shige is the acting director of one of those centers at the University of Maryland. So Shige, can you start off by telling us a little bit about your own campus work as it occurs through a justice and equity lens? What got you into this in the first place? Sure. I actually started as a student activist back in high school and, you know, was very, very involved throughout college from the late 90s into 2003. 
you know, I came to Washington, D.C. in 2003 after mm-hmm. graduating and worked on LGBT issues in higher ed from a national advocacy perspective in how to train students, train student activists, and how do you create changes on your own campuses. And it was something I had been doing throughout my time in college. Mm-hmm. So I've been working professionally then in LGBT issues in higher education for almost 15 years now. And this was a very scary field to enter into when I first started because, you know, we didn't have a lot of access to protective laws. And and Mm -hmm. we're kind of now back in that situation again where, you know, there's erosion of rights. Um, But when I started this work professionally, you know, we still had not overturned anti-sodomy laws. We Mm -hmm. still had not had a single place in the United States that had marriage equality. And so the landscape has changed quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And and campuses are changing quite a bit, too. But the necessity of uh, centers that work on issues of equity, diversity, and inclusion is just continuing to grow Mm -hmm. throughout this time. Let me bring Isha into this conversation as well. So as I said, Isha is a recent alum of Northeastern University, a private university in Boston, and she was involved with many efforts on campus to raise awareness about social issues on and off campus. So Isha, tell us a little bit about your own work on campus and your point of entry into doing student activism. I kind of entered into thinking about justice in a more systemic way when I actually went on a study abroad to the Dominican Republic and Cuba right after my freshman year of college. So I entered into Northeastern University in Boston, an undeclared student with a general idea that I wanted to like do some good in the world in my career was like very typical, I think, for a lot of for a lot of students and kind of wandered a little bit without direction. And then I ended up getting the chance to go on this dialogue devoted to studying microfinance in particular. I think as a lot of students might have experienced from study abroad, it kind of made me a little bit more jaded. I got the chance to work for a microfinance organization while I was there that worked specifically and most intentionally with Haitian migrant populations in the Dominican Republic, uh, most of whom are undocumented. So in kind of studying the nature of their debt and understanding the limits to what business and traditional markets could do to actively mobilize them out of poverty, I developed this kind of understanding about political justice and how it went beyond the realm of something like electoral politics to something very much more systemic and unjust about the way that our world works. So I think that was where my lens kind of shifted, and I started to try and learn a little bit more about what was happening on campus around justice beyond, like, entrepreneurship and the more moderate methods of service that I had encountered previously. So as this was happening, I also found my way uh, very deeply engaged in the South Asian community on campus, which was a very validating experience for me. And as that was happening, also found my way into being a part of the Pan-Asian American Council, uh, led by incredibly motivated Asian American Center staff on campus. And as I was kind of engaging more with my culture in a more modern sense, rather than the version that had kind of brought over from my parents, I started to, I think, understand inequity a little bit more significantly and try and bring the work that I was doing and the things that I was learning from my own intellectual pursuits of understanding injustice into the work that I was doing around cultural life on campus. And with that, I made some really incredible connections with people in uh, the organizing community at Northeastern and other communities of color who were doing really incredible work on organizing on campus, as well as 
really pursuing a lot of research and intellectual knowledge about what injustice and justice look like in this world. So that was kind of um, my segue into that kind of work. And I spent about three and a half years, I think, more deeply engaged with that kind of work and that kind of thinking and those kinds of people at Northeastern. Shige, I'm assuming that you have met students like Isha on your college campus as well, who have this real interest in doing justice work, and yet are kind of on a college campus where sometimes the demands for justice may not get met. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the concerns that particularly LGBTQ students, students of color face at the University of Maryland that maybe you've been privy to. What are the sorts of campaigns and issues that keep percolating up? Because you know, students have rallied for centers like the one that you're at. And and I'm curious to know what happens after that, after you get the center, after you get the staff in place. I think that's a challenge. And it really depends on the campus that you're on. Because Mm -hmm. I think in some places, I think we're trying to stop fairly basic things, sometimes like harassment or hostile environment, Mm -hmm. where people are putting up slurs on whiteboards, or even vandalism, classroom dynamics, and sometimes it's it's in a, a space that's new for people like, you know, respecting names and pronouns and talking about these are my pronouns. Can you please respect that? And helping to get faculty, staff and students all on board with that can be quite a challenge. But I would say, you know, working in an LGBT center space that has a decent amount of staffing, you know, we see people drop in, come and hang out, visit different student groups. And we're seeing all kinds of issues. And so, mm-hmm. you know, of course, some of those you might think of in a traditional, like, this is the LGBT issue framework mm. of, like, trans issues, bisexual issues. What does that mean? Oh, we should have laws that protect us. And like I said, there's things around names and restrooms and pronouns and and all kinds of things. But we see lots of students that are struggling around um, not having enough food to eat. Mm. A number of years ago at at the uh, Creating Change Conference, there actually was a a workshop on food pantries on college campuses. Mm. And it actually kind of shocks me, not that we don't need food pantries, these are really important critical services, but that it's not necessarily leading us to question how we got here. And so, you know, there are issues also around health and mental health, and all these connect to each other. And some of these are actually exacerbated or caused in part by colleges. Um, Mm. So some of that can be insufficient financial aid packages. Some of that can be college cost. Some of that can be insufficient student wages. And so these are things that also concern me and concern folks that work in my field. And so... I'm very concerned about all those things. And in the current climate, I'm concerned about erosion of rights on the federal Mm -hmm. level. What we're seeing out of many different federal agencies is frightening, and it has an effect on our campus, despite the fact that I work in a state and a campus that has state, local, and campus-level protections for gender identity, sexual orientation, gender expression. Um, Despite the fact that we have these protections, when something happens on the federal level and it creates news, it impacts us. And of course, our students have lives outside of just living in Maryland and on our campus. Mm -hmm. Some of them commute from other places. Uh, Some of them, you know, may be wanting to be in the military. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of them may be wanting to work for the federal government. And so what does it mean when they see these, these rights being eroded? And then what happens when I start getting calls from around campus of, oh, I heard this thing on the news. Should we start treating trans people differently? 
And that's really, really frightening to me. Shiga, I want to actually do a follow-up question with you. So you talked about the students you encounter at the center and that there are concerns that they have around identity, respect, a shared space, shared community, and of course, access, harassment, mental health, and the like, and the, the erosion of rights. On the flip side, what do you think that college administrators and faculty and staff need to be doing to address that? I mean, you mentioned that some of this is systemic caused by the university setting itself, which I think is a really important point. But I've noticed this real interest in talking about, you know, inclusion and diversity and equity on college campuses. But a lot of times those start and end with trainings. And I'm just wondering if you can take us down the path a little bit further. What more do we need to see? And what maybe are you all doing on your campus? It could be some good practices. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more that we need to see, and we can't train the problems away. Um, I think that training and education are absolutely critical to the work that we do. And at the same time, I think that we often lean on it as a political solution to say, oh, look, we did that training. Oh, look, we did that thing. I think it's really complicated. I don't think that there's a, a simple, like, if we just did this, everything would be great in the world of social justice. But I do think that there are more connections that can happen between students and staff, faculty, administrators. You know, I think sometimes the most effective moments that I've had are ones where, you know, I'm able to work with a student who wants to advocate for something. Maybe our office also wants to advocate for something. Are we sharing Mm -hmm. information at the very least about what it is that we're working on? There isn't always the ability, nor is it, I think, good to 100% share exactly what's happening. What is your tactic? What are you planning? Right? Because that can cause problems on both sides of Mm -hmm. that. But at the same time, I've seen so many times where you know, somebody that's advocating, whether it's student, staff, faculty, administrator, doesn't really know what the other parties are doing, isn't really thinking about what mm-hmm. other people's needs are, what conversations might already be happening. And so I think that there's a lot of just networking and information sharing on a really basic level mm-hmm. that can that can help us. And I've seen that when we worked on trans inclusion in student health insurance And the student government's diversity committee became very involved. The student government president was involved. I was involved and our office was involved. There was a trans student of color who had spoken out quite a bit and was in a a number of media articles. There was sort of uh, conversations ongoing. There's a lot of policy uh, bureaucracy, right? Mm -hmm. And so like much of higher education is a bureaucracy. And I think that's the challenge that I think a lot of students have with higher ed is that it doesn't give satisfaction in a fast way. But that doesn't mean that change doesn't happen and Mm -hmm. that we can't make concrete, meaningful change and start to see results. Um, But sometimes it is sort of one foot in front of the other and knowing that one change leads to the next one. Right. Moving to you, Isha, can you talk a little bit about some of the campaigns or policy bureaucratic changes, I guess, that Shige was talking about that you might have worked on on your college campus when it came to working with other students of color, particularly? Listeners can't hear it, but I was nodding along, along very, very uh, forcefully <laughs> as a lot of those, as Shige, you were sharing a lot of your thoughts. Like, I think it's important to contextualize Northeastern a little bit because, as Shige mentioned, it's actually 
very different, but in a lot of ways similar from university to university. So Northeastern is a relatively new university on like the global scale and rankings and things like that. It used to be a commuter university local to the city of Boston. And I think that transition that it's experienced in the past few decades is really essential to understanding what injustice looks like on that campus. So as Northeastern is, is kind of transitioning from the commuter to global status, the demographics on campus change rapidly. So right now, the Asian American student population at Northeastern is reported as being the largest at 16%. The campus population is 6% Black, and Northeastern was located in one of the historical Black neighborhoods of Boston, Roxbury. Mm -hmm. So thinking about what that looks like and how students on campus, Black students on campus, LGBTQ students on campus, how they see people just like them being treated by police departments on campus, by other centers that are supposedly established for diversity and inclusion, it's very clear that there's not a strategic effort to create an equitable campus or an equitable university in the way that there might be rhetoric. So a couple of the things that you mentioned about like trainings and things like that, Northeastern in particular, and a lot of universities that I've engaged with, they tick off the box. They create the centers with the correct names, often require the same staff who are already overworked to work at multiple stations or multiple programs because they want to publicize that they have access to this to attract a quote-unquote diverse population of students. And a lot of the work that we did on campus started off from a place of wellness. Like, it doesn't just matter that students have, like, the, the theoretical protection. What are you doing to change campus culture? What does it mean for them to have an actively positive environment as opposed to just alleviating the negative factors? At a predominantly white institution, at a place that doesn't necessarily have accessible buildings that might be isolating for people who are from the surrounding communities and manage to make their way into an institution like Northeastern to kind of study alongside students who come from a place of economic privilege and don't necessarily experience the same kind of hardship that they do? What does it mean to create a positive environment for them? Mm -hmm. So that includes things like working on sexual assault policy on campus. There's been some really incredible work done by students around that. Better mental health resources. What does it mean for a student to have campus or um, university-based health insurance, and how does that affect the quality of care that they're able to receive? Graduate students at Northeastern right now are actually working to unionize, and a lot of them are students of color, or a lot of them are trans students, and what does it mean for them to be shut down as firmly as they are and not be able to advocate for themselves? What does it mean for these graduate students to not be able to advocate for themselves? What kind of economic insecurity does that entail? So that kind of touches upon a number of the different movements that I've seen happening right now, even. But I think it's also important to understand, like, students and staff that are actively devoted to this kind of work are also tired and have other things to do besides organizing. Like, if you're a student, you also have to maintain a certain academic performance. You need to maintain a social life, whatever that entails. And, and I think that's why it's particularly important to focus in on college organizing, because the atmosphere in which it happens when people live and work and study and do all these things in the same place can both be really inspiring and also really taxing. So I think resources are important, but they are often like used as checkboxes. Like technically, we have these group therapy sessions happening every week. Who's taking advantage of them? Who has access to them? So yeah, shifting that culture is really important.
And then Shige, yeah. you were nodding while yeah. Isha was I, talking about that. I mean, I think like it can be really brutal, especially for student activists. Um, as Isha was saying, like, you know, your primary role as a college student is not necessarily to be an activist. But the reality is for many students, it is being an activist. It is working part time or full time jobs, uh, you know, just to get through college. But really, the point of the mm-hmm. education is, you know, ultimately to live a life of meaning and purpose and to get your degrees and to move on. On to the next things and moving on to the next things can be really really difficult when you you know are, are being so taxed by the environment that you're in and I just want to point out that you know obviously student activism is not new right we've seen it for mm-hmm. many 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 decades but I did want to note that recently the website 538 broke down the most common demands on college campuses by students in 2015 and found that there has been an uptick in terms of student activism, particularly because of the movement for Black Lives, and found that student protesters want increased diversity of professors, more cultural centers, tracking of race-related offenses, for example, better policies, as both of you were saying, retention of students of color particularly, and that responsibility to the community that they are part of, as Isha, Mm -hmm. you pointed out, as all the demands that students are asking for. But I want to ask both of you, actually, if we can stay here for a minute and talk a little bit about Yes, there's the demand, but then, as you know, this is a podcast on solidarity. So I'm really curious in understanding a little bit about what are some of the challenges and opportunities when it comes to working across identity, right, on college campuses with either students of color or even with other centers or Mm -hmm. administrators, right, who are working with different students' uh, populations. So Shige, do you want to... Give us your thoughts on sure. that. Sure. Yeah. So the LGBT Equity Center, where I work, has been around since 1998. Mm-hmm. We've updated our mission since then. And our mission and our vision focus on, one, creating an equitable campus environment. And two, is engaging people, growing leadership for social justice, for action, for transformation. Mm-hmm. And so part of that development of leadership and leaders, particularly among students, Yes, it is to create that equitable campus environment, but part of that is also that that is something that is of value in the world in and of itself, the leadership development. Mm -hmm. We think a lot about racial justice, about intersectional issues, and how that that plays into our work. I would say definitely that our programs in our center are um, utilized by students of color more than are on the campus proportionally. And so we have probably about half of the students that are involved with our programs as identify as students of color. Hmm. There are many challenges to that work and many demands and opportunities that I see as well. There's a lot of spaces that the students have created and that we've hosted within our center, a disabled LGBTQ organization. We've had a small conversation among African immigrant LGBTQ students. Uh, We've started hosting Muslim prayer time in our center. And so there's a lot of ways that we can build community. But as Aisha was saying earlier, you know, I think it has to be more than just programs. It has to be more than just trainings. And the other thing is that as folks are demanding things, 
and some of these amazing changes that we absolutely need, we have to be thinking in those demands how that we talk about the structural and infrastructural pieces of that. So what's the staffing that's needed in order to do all those trainings? Is there a whole department that's needed relative to that? So at University of Maryland, you know, there's a number of things that have been going on, and there's been a lot of problems and a lot of terrible things that have happened. At the same time, you know, we've got a, a new department around diversity training and education that is becoming its more of an independent department that, you know, will work with my center, with other centers and with student groups on campus. There's going to be a hate bias response coordinator. We have a lot of resources around and then, the co- and resources for undocumented students, for example. Exactly. And there's mm-hmm. a there's now a full time undocumented role on campus. And so there are new resources but often in the LGBT space, I hear maybe a student demand for we need X, Y, or Z. And we, we also are feeling the brutality of way too much to do, not mm-hmm. enough resources to do it. And so, again, that's the opportunity, I think, for us to be in conversation right. um, to kind of know on both sides of this equation. Because I think that, like, folks right. working in these kinds of centers really want to, like, empower and work with students, but also have some issues of our own. But we can work together so that we can both support each other in kind of creating not just the programming or resources, but the the infrastructure around that, the funding around that, the staffing around that. Many mm-hmm. times people, you know, when students go and start to ask some of these centers, how are you funded and what are your positions right. like? You may find out that some of those staff don't have stable funding lines. They're not permanent positions. Things that might appear on the surface like they're permanent because that person's been in that role for three years, Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that that office has not had problems with sustaining that funding Mm -hmm. politically, right, within the institution. Mm -hmm. And so there are many things that staff aren't necessarily going to proactively tell that to students because that will be seen as as you're just advocating for yourself. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that also advocates for what students' needs are. Mm -hmm. But that's where we have to sort of break down some of that barrier. That's so useful. And thank you for sharing some of the ways in which students can be advocating more broadly as well. So Isha, just on that point on solidarity efforts, tell us a little bit about some of the challenges and opportunities that you saw or experienced while you were on campus? I think starting from the really important point that Shige has been discussing, the idea that we're forced to compete for resources, I think is is very ingrained in a lot of communities of color. Mm -hmm. For example, I was mainly involved in leadership for the South Asian organization, which served a fluid membership of, of 200 to 250 people at any given time, which is huge for a predominantly white institution. And we were constantly requesting for funding and learning to try and navigate the intensive bureaucracy of this this school that very clearly did not see our cultural contribution as significant, while also trying to figure out how to create a safe environment and and a validating environment for the students that we serve. And it's very easy to get caught up in that and not really think meaningfully about why are these limitations placed upon us? Why are we seen as competing for resources for funding? Why is this funding not guaranteed? And this is not just at a student organization level. This is something you see for centers. You see for all of these different initiatives to whom diversity is delegated. I'm generally really skeptical of departments because of this, or like departments that are created or centers that are created, unless, of course, like the incredible staff that I've worked with are really spearheading it, because I think there's this 
navigation of that language that's become common vernacular. Like people are able to just drop those words, diversity and inclusion, cultural engagement, like cultural awareness. Like there's just all of these words that have just become part of college speak, of administrator speak, that are really easy to kind of create initiatives around without offering them the necessary resources. And also, if you have a diversity and inclusion department, does that mean that it's only their job to include diversity and inclusion as programming? What are you doing across the board to make that change culturally? So I think that's a huge issue to kind of overcome. And going back to the idea of competing for resources, rather than thinking, oh, why does that community of color have such a beautiful center with all of this money and all of this resources, thinking about why don't we all have one of those? I think the way that the limitations on resources, that narrative really served administrations pretty well because it means that it makes it very hard for different communities of color to unite if they feel like they're constantly trying to advocate for themselves. And that's really easy to get caught up in. And I think that was probably the biggest concern and a conversation that I unfortunately saw change less than I'd like to over the course of my time in college, but really meaningful interpersonal connection that comes from a shared stake in creating a more just environment. I think that's meaningful solidarity and not the kind that I think is necessarily recognized at the moment, at least on on that campus, and also leads to a divide between people who choose to devote themselves to, like, quote-unquote, cultural life versus, quote-unquote, like, organizing. I think Aisha was really bringing home a critical point around the work that we need to do through cultural centers, through equity centers, is not just about more programs. Oh, there's a problem. We do a training oh, we don't have a space for this, we create a speaker or a workshop. But I think in order for people to feel safe, they have to be safe. And in order to get there, this is about broad climate change mm-hmm. and campus change, transformation. What does that mean? And what? how does that look? Because I work in an office that has three full-time positions. And how do we impact a community when you include students and employees that's over 50,000 people? And so we have to think really strategically about some of the things that we're doing. You know, we've been thinking a lot about doing more online trainings. We've thought about doing face-to-face things that really invite people in from all parts of the campus. We've been thinking about capacity building. How is it that, you know, different areas of the campus now have different diversity officers? Mm. Um, And so that provides a network. So we should be both decentralized and centralized. These centers should have expertise in some of these areas that matter with people that have a long record of knowledge and involvement in Mm -hmm. these communities. And at the same time, everyone has to take responsibility for this on some level. But we have to sort of play the in-between and do both. I don't want every department, you know, when there's hundreds of departments and I work on a a campus with hundreds of buildings. I don't want every department to come to my center and say, can you do a training on LGBT issues for us? Mm -hmm. I mean, I would love that if we had the resources to then do that. What I would love instead, though, given our current, you know, political, strategic and financial context, what I'd like is that more centers and departments will say, we want to learn how to train our people Mm -hmm. on some of these issues that matter. Can you help us learn how to be better facilitators and trainers of these conversations in our context, because we want to take responsibility to have some of these conversations and not just lean on diversity centers to be the ones to come and always facilitate that conversation. And so that's where I think we can do a lot of the work. And that's where I think the shift has to take place. So the Mm -hmm. framing that I've been using more and more is good practices 
and how do we identify, disseminate, and implement good practices across campus and to think about networks and capacity building. So I think those are some of the key things we have to think about to move forward. So Isha, as we close, I want to ask you, you know, you graduated, I think you said four months ago, and then you have gone on to actually continue your organizing work at um, Color of Change, where you are right now. What advice do you have for, you know, both college students who are organizing right now on college campuses, as well as recent alums in terms of being supportive of some of the efforts that we've talked about, both on an individual basis, but also on a structural basis as well? I think it's really important for uh, students and stakeholders and youth in particular to understand the specific power that they hold and understand what it means to speak to the most vulnerable stakeholders in an issue or in a system. And then kind of taking some risks with that power. So like what I think is particularly fascinating and interesting about the Parkland protesters is that they understand that they have power as consumers and have power from the trauma that they experienced, and they're taking it on to leverage that power to do something with it and target the corporate power of the NRA. And something that I wish that I had recognized sooner in my academic career is understanding how students can support labor organizing by teachers, understanding um, the politics of punishment and how it happens in particular schools or to particular communities more than others. Academic environments, while we joke about them not necessarily being the real world, are kind of incubators for what the real world could look like and does look like. So I think understanding that, and even as an alum, does it mean more to donate to this under-resourced center? Does it mean more to withhold funding and ask other alums to withhold funding? And through that statistic, but this many, this percentage of alumni have donated to withhold funding until that center is fully resourced. Like, what does it mean to take some risks with the power that you have? Well, I think we're all students. I think that we're all learning, and that's the posture that we need to be in, even if we are seasoned organizers or activists or advocates. So I want to thank both of you for being on the Solidarity Assist podcast. I feel like we could talk for hours and still really be scratching the surface at some level because these issues are really complex. And as both of you have mentioned time and again, it differs from campus to campus. But I think that what what I've learned from you being in that posture of learning is that it's really important to move beyond programming and trainings and even a stated mission to diversity and social justice on college campuses to think about what does meaningful transformative policy change look like within the campus proper in terms of its relationship to the community around it, um, but also what are the structural and infrastructural needs. Some of those are financial, some of those are staff-related that need to be put into place if a college campus or an institution of higher learning is really interested in transformative culture, climate change when it comes to diversity, inclusion, equity, and solidarity. I think that is the critical question that anyone who is an educator or student or administrator has to ask themselves so that we can move beyond the training and programming aspect of some of the work that's been happening on college campuses around the country. So thank you to both of you, Shige at the University of Maryland, Isha, who's at Color of Change right now, for joining the Solidarity Assist podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. As we close, I want to end with a call to action for this month for all of you. Now, you might know that on April 25th, the Supreme Court is hearing the case of Hawaii versus Trump. Now, this is the case otherwise known as the Muslim ban. You might remember that it was first issued by the Trump administration in January of last year, just days after Trump's inauguration. 
Since then, Trump has issued two more executive orders banning immigration from particular countries and suspending the refugee resettlement program. Currently, the countries banned include Iran, Libya, Syria, Somalia, Yemen, Chad, North Korea, and Venezuela. Almost every federal court that has heard challenges to the Muslim ban has found it to be unconstitutional. But here we are at the United States Supreme Court, and on April 25th, the Supreme Court will reflect on whether the Muslim ban violates the Constitution and whether the courts can have a say over a president's decision on immigration matters. So here's your call to action. Please show up if you're in D.C. before the United States Supreme Court on April 25th. You can learn more about the rally and other events that are happening on that day in Washington, D.C. at this website, www.nomuslimbanever.com. Now, if you're not in D.C., please consider pulling together your own event on your campus or in your community. You can find more information about how to put together an event, including a toolkit and other best practices. And you can also register your event on www.nomuslimbanever.com. Thank you so much for joining me this month for another episode of Solidarity Is This. I look forward to talking with you again in May.